I'm glad to be here tonight. I'm glad to be able to talk about an apologetic issue that in our culture uh, seems to be very challenging today. Does science disprove Christianity? Or are they, are they one and partial? Can they work together? So let me kind of dispel what I'm not going to do tonight. And that's not going to answer objections about evolution or fossils or intelligent design. We have answers for all of those things. Uh, we even have questions that push back on those things uh, because anytime that somebody makes a statement, they have the responsibility of uh, proving that statement and providing evidence for that statement. So what I want to do tonight is to show how that this conversation, this apparent struggle between science and Christianity is actually a conversation between two different worldviews. Uh, the worldview of what we would call naturalism and the worldview of what we call theism. And so in your, your notes or your handouts, you'll see that I, I phrased this as a conversation between two worldviews with two different stories of reality and two different stories or ideals on what is true. And what I'm going to end with is showing how that in actuality, science only works from a Christian worldview. It, it does not work from a naturalistic worldview, and we will uh, flesh all that out over the next four and a half hours. I'm kidding. Four, 45 minutes. But before we do, let, let's start with Scripture. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I want to pick up in verse 18, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 23. And the Word of God says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, now let's zoom in here on the next couple of verses. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is pure, that is true. We thank you for uh, the doctrine of general revelation where we can learn things about you through uh, creation itself. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you are not just there, but you are there and you have spoken. And so I ask tonight, as we look at this topic, may our hearts and minds be encouraged and challenged and equipped through your word and through um, just whatever I may say. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you look at this passage... We see this doctrine of general revelation. And, and I zoomed in there to see that we can learn certain things about God through the things that have been made. That is the stuff that's around us. And those, those things that have been made, we can learn enough about God to convict us. We are without excuse. We are condemned. We look at the sun. We look at the moon. We look at the stars. And we stand under condemnation because God's eternal power and His divine nature are seen in those things. 
But what do we do? Well, we see that we suppress the truth. And because we suppress the truth, God's wrath is revealed against us. And we see these two things that are our minds, they're futile. That means they don't work the way they're supposed to. Spend time around teenagers. You'll learn that real quick. And number two, our hearts were darkened. Now what's interesting is if you look at this book and you look at the progression throughout the book of Romans, what Paul does is he starts with, here our, our minds don't work the way they're supposed to, and our hearts are darkened. And then we fast forward to uh, chapter 12, and how are we to be made new? Through the renewing of our minds. We are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Because what Paul says is, because of sin, our minds don't work the way they're supposed to. But because of the gospel, our minds will start to think in line with the Christian worldview, as we call it. With what God has said about himself, about us, about reality, and about the future. And so as we build this term worldview, I want to take a few moments and define what I mean. Because when we use words, we should define them so that there's not any confusion. Uh, we don't want to assume that somebody's going to mean something um, other than what we want to, them to understand. And so when we talk about worldview, let me, let me give you the simplest definition of the word. It's how we see the world. A worldview is how you or I see the world. And, and here's the reality of this. Everybody has a worldview. They may not know it. They may not be able to articulate it. A friend of mine, Dr. Bill Brown from the Colson Center, he says it this way, that a worldview has everyone. And so because all of us have a worldview, and often we're unaware of how we articulate that, we're also unaware of how it informs what we think about the world around us. Every cultural artifact that we see today is made from a worldview. So when you watch a movie, you could ask a question. What does this say about man? What does this say about man's problem? What does this say about uh, the solution to man's problem? Every book that you read, every song that you listen to, they're all from somebody's worldview. And so as we think about this concept of a worldview, let me give you the definition that my, um, one of my seminary professors at Southeastern, Dr. Mark Lederbach, said. And, there's, and I love this definition because it's got three components that we can really press in on. And so I'll say this slowly and I'll, I'll, couple, I'll repeat it a couple times. He says that a worldview is a system of beliefs. A worldview is a system of beliefs by which an individual, and here's the three important words, perceives, interprets, and judges reality. So let me say that a couple more times. A worldview is a system of beliefs by which an individual perceives, interprets, and judges reality. Now keep in mind, everybody has a worldview. So that means that everybody perceives reality, everybody interprets reality, and everybody judges reality. But if you have the wrong worldview then you get the wrong perception, interpretation, and judgment about what is real. So let me say that one more time. A, system, a worldview is a system of beliefs by which an individual perceives, interprets, and judges reality. Now, when we, we use the word perception, here's what I mean by the word perception. 
It's how do we experience reality? How do we experience the things around us? And, and normally what we think about when we think about perception is we think about our five senses, right? Touch, smell, taste, see, and hear. We're aware of the objects and the relationships and the events, and so we become aware of these things, we perceive them, but if we perceive them and now we're aware of them, we got to think about them. We have to interpret them. So we have to understand what this reality is. So we perceive it, we interpret it, and then we judge it. So what did I experience? How do I process what that is? And is that good or bad? And depending on who you talk to, um, worldviews can have all sorts of components and, and all sorts of different questions. But I want to narrow down this concept of worldview that every worldview is going to answer three questions. Every worldview is going to seek to answer three questions. The first question every worldview will answer is what is real? What is real? The second question is what is true? So what is real and what is true? And the last question is what is good? What is good? So we have what is real, what is true, and what is good. And if you think about objections to Christianity, they normally fall into one of those last two categories. Is Christianity true or is it good? Or is it both or is it neither? So when we look at every worldview, let's kind of fall through the logic here. Everybody has a worldview. Every worldview is going to answer what is real, what is true, what is good, because everybody's going to perceive, interpret, and judge reality. That means that everybody has a statement about what is real, what is true, and what is good. And so the question that we don't ask a whole lot as Christians, and we should, is upon what authority can you say that that is real, that that is true, or that is good? And so this is kind of where we find ourselves with this debate because science says that science is true and that's the end of the discussion. But if you think about it, science isn't infallible. I mean, really, if we take science for what it is, science is a long history of people getting stuff wrong until they get it right. I mean, for centuries, people believed, and some still do, that the earth is flat. For centuries, people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And then Copernicus said, no, that's, that's not right. And what's interesting is if you go back, and I'll touch more on this in a little bit, if you go back and look at all of the early scientists, they were all Christians because they understood Romans chapter 1 and they tried to learn about God by looking at creation. So really, science emerges from a Christian worldview. Why? If you study church history, you know that uh, the church was really the, they were the stewards of education. And as they began to steward education, they, they said, and, and Thomas Aquinas said this, that theology is the queen of the sciences. Why? Because it unites everything together. 
And, and I'll talk more about that in just a second. But I, I've put some worldviews there for you. Uh, the two worldviews I want to focus in on tonight in the time that we have. Number one is naturalism. And you'll notice there in your notes there should be a rectangle, a box. If you're a naturalist, you can, I encourage you, in that box I want you to write the word reality. Reality. Did the, did the box make it to the notes? All right, we're going to draw a box. So now we're in art class. We've moved from apologetics and philosophy to art. So if you'll draw just a rectangle there, and in the middle of that rectangle, just write the word reality. And, and here's why that I ask you to do that. If you're a consistent naturalist, everything is inside the box. There's nothing outside the box because there's nothing supernatural, Right? So everything is inside the box, and in the 70s, I saw the reruns of this. Not, I didn't see them in the 70s. I saw them later because I was not alive until 79. But Carl Sagan had a, uh, a pretty famous television show called Cosmos, right? And he started with the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. And that is a summation of the naturalistic worldview. There's nothing outside the box that, that all there is, all there was, all there ever will be is inside the box. And so watch what happens here. If you adopt that paradigm, that way of thinking, then everything that you see or experience or has ever happened or will happen has to be explained by the relationships inside the box. You can't pull something outside of the box and say, this is what caused that. This provides a huge challenge for the naturalist because they have to explain the empty tomb as we think about Easter from inside the box. And so here's what they come up with. The wrong tomb, because they couldn't just go to the right tomb, right? That everybody who saw the risen Christ, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he appeared to 500 at once, that they all hallucinated and saw the same thing. That the disciples stole the body we see how that these, these don't make sense, right? Because if the disciples stole the body and they know it's a fraud, then why would they die for it? A lot of people will die for something they know to be true, but nobody will die for something that they know to be false. And so science has to operate inside the box, if you're a naturalist, to explain everything. Uh, I had a friend, I think when people start studying apologetics, you need to kind of be put off to the side and let yourself cool down for a little bit before we talk to people. I had a friend, he said, Billy, um, there is nothing that is not physical in nature. And I said, well, that's interesting. Do you have a mind? And he said, yeah, I got it between my, my ears. I said, that's your brain. That's the physical component. Your mind is the non-physical component by which you have thoughts. And so by telling me this, you're also telling me that you don't have any thoughts. And he said, well, no, they can hook me up to a machine and we can, we can track all those things. I said, no, that tracks an electrical impulse, but it doesn't tell you the content of your thoughts. Right? I also made the same mistake when dealing with the problem of evil. And I had an individual that said, if God were good, he would remove evil. And I, I had no filter. And I said, you want him to start with you? And uh, that, was not the way, that was not the way to answer that question. Uh, but anyway, so everything has to be explained from inside of the box, if you will. But we now have uh, the worldview that we ascribe to as Christians. It's a theistic worldview. 
And the theistic worldview we see is in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, before space and time existed, God as Trinity existed. And in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1. What's interesting is if you study the original Hebrew, that word bara, it only takes one subject in the Old Testament, and that is God. It's not the same word that's used when man creates something. And what I find to be especially important when we talk about the value of human beings, this is, this is free tonight, this has nothing to do with science, is that when you get to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and when it says that God created man in his image, that word bara shows up three times. But yet, when we get the description of God creates the six billion stars, we get, and the stars. That, that shows God speaks the stars into existence. But if you know anything about the Hebrew language, especially when they repeat things three times, like holy, holy, holy. And when God talks about, when, when we get the revelation that man is created in his image, that he's created, and that word barah shows up three times. Showing that the creation of man is distinctly different than everything else in creation. Because human beings are the only entities in all of creation that bear the Imago Dei. And that's what gives us worth and value. That's not possible in a naturalistic worldview. So not only is science impossible, so is justice. Because you've got to pull a concept like good out, but good's a non-physical component that's not in that worldview. Do you, you guys see that? So it, it, it puts a lot of challenges for them. But anyway, theism... So we're at, we're at point B here on that first part. Theism, theism states that the universe's existence, the universe's existence depends upon the act of a creator. And because we're theists and not pantheists, we believe that there is a distinct difference between creation and creator. So if we go back to the analogy of the box, if you did it from a theistic worldview, you could put the box and put reality inside it, and then you could put God above it because God transcends reality. In fact, God is the ultimate reality. But God transcends the box. If you are a pantheist, and, and like Star Wars and that type of stuff, that God and the box are together. They're inside. They're the same thing. Everything has this essence. But it's another topic for another day. So we as Christians believe in a theistic worldview, which means that we have both creation and creator. We have physical things and non-physical things. We have things that we can touch, smell, taste, see, and hear. And then there are things that we can't touch, smell, taste, see, and hear. And they are just as real. So if this is the paradigm that we have between this idea of the Christian worldview or the theistic worldview and the naturalistic worldview, then as I've mentioned, they have two different ideas about what is real. So in point number two there, two competing concepts of reality. As we move forward here, I've got to, I've got to have you understand that what you believe about reality and what you believe about truth are inseparable. Because what you believe about reality will determine how you look at what is true and how you arrive at truth. And how you arrive at truth will determine what you think is real. So let me give you an example of this. If we hold to this naturalistic worldview, 
Philosophers call this metaphysical naturalism. Now, don't, don't worry so much about those words, but um, they, they believe everything is real that is known through our senses, as I've mentioned. And so the only way we can know that is through the discipline of science. If you've sat in a science class, you've heard of something called the empirical method, right? We measure something, and because we measure it, we can arrive at what's true. Now, what this does is it moves away from us receiving truth, and it moves to us, at the very least, recognizing, but in some cases, people believe they create what is true. So when we talk about this idea of naturalism, we talk about this idea of empiricism, let's contrast that with the idea of... um, Well, let me 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 back up just a second. our, Our culture today... If, if we're paying attention, they will have this, well, that's what science says, but here's what religion says. And so how do we get there? I want you to write these words down, uh, and you, you can look them up later, but it's the facts-values split. You, you could do it this way. You could draw a horizontal line, and you could put facts on the bottom, and you could put values on the top. So a horizontal line with the word value on the top and the word fact on the bottom. Now, now why is this important? Our, our secular culture believes that anything that is proven by science is a fact, and it's on the bottom level. It, it's a public truth that every, everybody has to believe because science has proven it to be true. But anything that can't be known through your five senses, well, that's a value. That's on the top level. That's your personal truth. That's good for you. If you want to believe that, that's fine, but it's not science, so don't make everybody else believe it. And let me give you a real-life example. Science says that every cell, all one trillion cells in your body and my body, either have two X chromosomes or an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That is science. However, our culture says, well, you can have an X chromosome and you can have a Y chromosome, which we've always understood to be male, but we don't trust the science on that because gender is your value or your opinion that's on this level. So because it's not proven by science, that's your value. But you see how we're not consistent? Because I don't want that idea to determine really anything in my life. If science says X chromosome plus Y chromosome equal male, then you can't change that. So even an individual like Caitlyn Jenner, 100 years from now, when he dies, or he's going to be dead before 100 years from now, but they come and exhume his body and they do DNA tests, they're going to say this was a man because every cell had a Y chromosome. But our culture says, no, we can cast that aside because gender is something that you determine. You see the difference in this facts-value split. Now, here's the problem. They're not consistent. How do we know that? Because when you, when you ascribe to only the things that are proven by science is true, the first question I want to ask is, did you, is that a scientific statement? Because by your own understanding, if that's not a scientific statement, then that's your opinion, and I don't have to believe it because that's your value. 
So as we look at how this plays out, we have to understand that this idea of scientism, they, they say knowledge is only known through science, but we ask ourselves, are there things that we know that are not through science? I think so. I think we have things that exist like concepts of love and hope and mercy and grace. And those are not physical concepts. Now, they are manifested perfectly physically through Christ. However, you, you can't measure love empirically. But do we live in a world in which people go, well, love doesn't exist because it's a non-physical component? No, that, what a world to live in if there's no love or hope or mercy or grace or any of those things. So when we think about the theistic understanding of truth, let me give you a couple things. If you don't read uh, John Frame, you should. John Frame, Reformed philosopher, theologian, he says that we know anything through one of three ways. Let me give you three words you can hang some stuff on here. He says we know something because of God's authority, God's control or God's presence. The only way we can have any knowledge at all as human beings is because of God's authority, control, and presence. And let me tell you what he means by those words. God's authority means that he is the ultimate criteria of what's true or false. If God says it's true, it's true. If God says it's false, it's false. Our opinion of it doesn't matter. His control refers to he's the one that determines whether we can know anything at all. And how do we know this? Again, his control is the idea, can we know anything at all? He's created us as rational individuals with the power of reason in a world that is logical that we can measure and we can do these things to know something. So we have God's authority. He's the criteria of what's true and false. We have God's control. He determines what can be known or that we can know anything at all. And then his presence, his presence is what makes knowledge possible. His presence through the written word and through the living word. And think about the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets, but he has spoken to us directly. I mean, Jesus himself says, I am the truth. Not a truth, some truth, that he is the embodiment of truth. You, you might think of it this way. We have two circles. A larger circle at the top, a smaller circle at the bottom with two arrows that are going down. It means that God exists... And he enables us to have truth about ourselves and creation. If there's no upper circle, there's no knowledge because the, the arrows are going down. We're receiving truth from God. And how do we know that? Romans chapter 1, general revelation. We can learn about God through creation. And so we as Christians affirm something called the correspondence theory of truth. Let me just tell you what that means. The correspondence theory of truth says something is true if it corresponds with reality. So if I make the statement that this is a black podium and it is not indeed a black podium, then it is a false statement. And while this seems to be so intuitive to us as believers to say something is true if it lines up with reality, 
we have people today going, yeah, two plus two equals five. And if you don't believe that, you're trying to oppress us by making us think in a Western mindset. That's just craziness. So when we think about, we believe that what lines up with reality is what is true. Now the problem is, we don't have all the facts. And so when we look at Scripture, too many of us go, well, this is a science textbook. No, it's not a science textbook. But when it speaks about science, because it's infallible and it's inerrant, then when it says about science, it's true. When it says that God created the heavens and the earth, when it says that God made man in his image, when it says that God created the earth in six days, all of that is true, but we don't flip to the back and go, okay, so what's the Bible say about stem cell research? Because it ain't in there. And think about how weird it would be if it was in there. The New Testament writers writing about some technology that's 2,000 years beyond them, everybody went, what? what? This doesn't make any sense. So something's true if it corresponds to reality. And so I mentioned earlier Thomas Aquinas. He said that theology is the queen of the sciences. Why? Because it was how we understood everything else. You only properly understood humanity if you understood what the Bible says about humanity. You only properly understood reality, science, whatever it was, if you understood what Scripture says about it. I mean, think about this. We have universities... Two Latin words smashed together. Una veritas, one truth. And the earliest universities were established with the theology department informing all the other departments. So I guess today we should probably go in and rename. We have the pluralversity of North Carolina at Charlotte because the history department has its own truth and the science department has its own truth, and I don't even think they have a religion department anymore, but the English department has its own truth, and there's no one truth that's uniting all of them together that everybody seeks out their own truth. So again, if we're going to learn about what's true, then we have to use Scripture as our guide to understand the principles of how we look at the world around us. And so let me, let me kind of start to land the plane here a little bit in number four. The scientific method, it actually assumes a theistic worldview. So let, let's think about history for a minute. And for some of us, that's going to be painful because we hate history. But we think about history, we have these historical epics that we name not during the epic, but after the epic, right? So we've got this, this epic called the Enlightenment. And before the Enlightenment was what? The Dark Ages. Why do you think they called them the Dark Ages? Because people weren't enlightened. And how did they become enlightened? Because during the Dark Ages and what we call scholasticism, truth was received by man via the revelation of God. But during the Enlightenment, man goes, I don't need God's revelation. The basis of truth is not revelation. The basis of truth is reason. I can get all this information and I can arrange it together in a way that I can learn about the universe, but what does Scripture tell us about our reasoning capabilities? Our minds are futile. They don't work the way they're supposed to. The natural man has nothing to do with the things of God, right? We have to be redeemed to understand this. And so what would happen is that after the Dark Ages, you get in this idea of modernism, and the modern man is the measure of all things, and so if man can't understand it, measure it, see it, feel it, touch it. It can't be true, so that automatically moves religion to the top. Unless we understand that Christianity 
is a historical religion. That the events surrounding this week that we celebrate happened in real space, in real time, where people can investigate what happens. They can look at it and see, okay, this really did happen. We have more evidence outside of Scripture that there was a man who people referred to as Jesus who claimed and did all of these wonderful things, was crucified, was buried, and the tomb is empty. We have more evidence for that outside of Scripture than we do that Julius Caesar existed. But why don't we believe it? Because we don't like the implications of it. We want to be our own boss. So during the Enlightenment, man emerges from the darkness through the power of his own intellect. And it's no coincidence that while this is happening as an intellectual movement, science is taking off. The empirical method is taking off. And so is Darwinism. All of those are happening at the same time. And so the basis of truth has shifted from, re, from revelation to reason. And as I mentioned, they often say that science is infallible, but we only understand science if a couple of things are true. And let me give you a couple of those things. It has to be repeatable. Like we have to be able to do science experiments and repeat them over and over and over and over again. It has to be predictable. We have to know that if I take two atoms of hydrogen and put them with one atom of oxygen, that I'm going to get a, a water molecule and not an elephant. Could you imagine if every time that we did a science experiment, we got something wildly different? We can't operate in that world. We can't live in that world. Like you think about when people build planes, they, they assume certain things about reality. I hope that the next time I get on a plane, whoever designed that plane had some things in their head they were thinking about like, well, here's the pull of gravity and here's the coefficient of thrust that we have to get this plane off of the ground. So, not so that I shoot off like a spaceship, but I do so in a somewhat orderly fashion. This is why that we tell our, our students, hey, when it's raining, increase your stopping distance. Why? Because water is going to be on your brake pads and it's going to reduce the friction, which all of that is in an ordered universe. But the chief claim of naturalism is that all of this is a result of chaos. That nothing exploded and gave rise to everything that we see here. Do you see the, the faith that's in, in that? And what's interesting is that this is a problem for naturalists because every good naturalist now will say, well, wait a minute, the laws of thermodynamics show that the universe has a, a, a finite amount of energy and it can't be eternal because it would have ran out of energy by now. So the universe had to have a beginning. But keep in mind, they have to explain it from inside the box. They can't pull outside the box and say, God created the heavens and the earth. They have to say, well, nothing exploded and then it moved out in this way, and we just so happen to be in this universe to where everything is fine-tuned for us to live here. Because if the axis of the earth was tilted one degree in either direction, we'd either burn up or freeze out. And we just got real lucky. So I submit to you that not all statements by scientists are actually scientific statements. Many of them are philosophy statements. Because for science to work, it has to work in a universe that is created by a rational mind 
that has created individuals with rational minds that can perceive, interpret, and judge the universe that they find themselves in, that it has to be repeatable, it has to be predictable, it has to be knowable. And if none of that's true, science doesn't work. So the only way that science works is through a theistic worldview. Let me show you a slide that I, I think to be pretty convincing. Now, I wish they would put this in the other direction, but if you read across the top there, percentage of total Nobel Prizes won by atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers from 1901 to 2000. Between 1901 and the year 2000 reveals that atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers comprise 10.5% of Nobel Prize winners. So these numbers that you see here, you actually got to do a little bit of math to get to the true number. So in the Nobel Prize for Peace, you see that that says 3.6% of the Nobel Prize for Peace winners from 1901 to 2000, 100 years, 3.6% were atheists, agnostics, or free thinkers. That means that 96.4% of Nobel Peace Prize winners were theists. Why? Probably because their theology told them that they have to do something to love one another. Physics. You do the reverse math on that and you find that 95.3% of physics Nobel Prize winners over 100 years were theists. Chemistry. 7.1% were agnostics, free thinkers, or atheists. That means that 92.9% were theists. Now, the English department needs a little help here. Because in literature, 35.2%. So we still got the majority. We still have 64.8%. And I think that shows the power of story, right? We think about any movements that happen in culture. They're not done by arguments. They're done through stories. This is why that you can go from 1996, a Democratic president signing the Defense of Marriage Act, and then Will and Grace comes on TV and everybody's opinion of marriage changed. Or if you, you, you saw a TV show not too long ago, it was called Modern Family. When they stopped the introduction, you had a blended family, a same-sex family, and a traditional American family in the middle with modern family in front of it, insinuating that if your view of the family is not this, you're not modern. And nobody doesn't want to be modern, right? But as we think about the question at hand tonight, does science disprove Christianity I hope that I've made a case that science only works within the context of a theistic worldview, and I could push in later and say Christianity, but those numbers speak for themselves. 89.5% of all Nobel Prize winners across all those disciplines, physiology, medicine, chemistry, economic sciences, physics, peace, and literature, 89.5% were theists. So does science disprove Christianity? Absolutely not. I think at the end of the day, science has to assume certain things that are only true in the Christian worldview. Now we can talk about micro and macro evolution and fossil records and intelligent design and irreducible complexity and all those things till we're blue in the face. And we have answers for all those things as Christians. But I hope tonight I was able to show Science doesn't work because science can tell you that it works, but it cannot tell you why it works.
It cannot tell you how it works. Just like anything else in the naturalistic worldview, even in ethics, this is wrong, this is right, but they can't tell you why without appealing to something outside of the box. And the moment they do that, they defeat their own position. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for the ability to know truth. Thank you for your control, your authority, and your presence. And Lord, I hope that we can walk out of here with confidence that science does not disprove Christianity. In fact, science was born out of the Christian worldview where individuals throughout history have sought to know you more and come into a greater understanding of who you are and more importantly, what you have done for us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.